Wojong Wong is an engineer at Confluent, which offers a stream data platform using Apache Kafka. Guzong Wong, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you for having me. What is Apache Kafka? So, by its definition, Apache Kafka is a distributed PubSub messaging system that it can be used as like a pipeline backbone for our uh, for any you know online or real time messaging or pipelining um, purposes. Jay Kreps wrote a blog post on Confluent where he said, quote, we built Apache Kafka at LinkedIn with a specific purpose in mind to mm-hmm. serve as a central repository of data streams, end quote. Mm-hmm. What is a central repository for data streams? Yeah, I can uh, maybe briefly talk a little bit about the, the, like, the why we built Kafka at day one at LinkedIn. Please. So myself is also having uh, worked at LinkedIn for a couple of years before I became an engineer at Confluent. So we also have been working heavily on Kafka and I served as a, what we call it, as a pipelining backbone for all LinkedIn data. So the, the, the context is the following. So at LinkedIn, we have a lot of data that are, you know, uh, generated at our online services. Like we generate user activity tracking data, such as page views, impressions, etc. And we, we also collect a lot of server logs and metrics, such as syslogs, request rates. And at the same time, we also generate a lot of like emails or news feeds. And we have, again, some like computation derived data that are from our Hadoop clusters or from our data warehousing results. And we build a lot of the, uh, we, we call it the data products around those collected data, such as, you know, searching recommendation systems, monitoring, like, um, and, uh, you know, if you uh, have look at uh, who viewed your my profile, who have uh, my job uh, recommendations or any things, things like this, are all built around those data. So one key problem at that time that we ask ourselves is that how we can make those collected data to be available to those data products as soon as possible. Okay, so before we, uh, you know, developed Kafka, the solution is sort of, we call it a point-to-point pipeline, where each, um, you know, each service that generates the data basically make a contract with the, with the service that actually are consuming those data. So, like, two teams may use, um, you know, ActiveMQ, or we ca- they can be using as simple as, like, a tail uh, Tail um, uh, program or a simple uh, Python or you know shell script to tell those their their data and pipe to the other product or the other team to consume and uh, to uh, to make use of it. So right, this, and so so in yeah. that blog post, Jay Kreps highlighted two problems that Kafka aimed to solve. Yeah. The first is transporting data between systems, and the second is doing richer analytical processing. Mm-hmm. So why didn't existing systems do this when Kafka was first developed? Like, what were the things that you needed to overcome in your development of Kafka? Uh, yeah, so I think one major point at that time is the volume of data itself, right? So when, when we considered developing Kafka to actually meet our needs, like people use different systems to do their point-to-point pipeline, like I mentioned before. Like they use ActiveMQ of the shelf, or they can use some, you know, commercial messaging systems, or they use uh, as simple as like a like a P-tail or other any other shell scripts. All those systems 
like one key point, which is uh, hand handling high throughput of the data volume. And that is also one motivation that they basically have to use their own systems only for one purpose or one type of their data. And the one disadvantage of such a architecture is that because we need to maintain all kinds of those systems for different needs of the data pipelining, its you know management cost can be very 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 high. And it will be actually ideal to have a centralized pipeline backbone that basically can serve all kinds of those data as quickly as possible to serve to our data products. And of course, to do this, we basically need to design a new system that can be as skilled as possible to, to really handle this large volume of data. Okay, so let's talk a little more about those two problems that Jay highlighted. So the mm -hmm. first one, how does Kafka improve transportation of data between systems? Okay, so um, I can maybe start from like the trans traditional solutions to like data transmission, right? So traditionally, people basically build their you know real time or messaging systems uh, by you know really buffering the data, and so that uh, the consume uh, the consumers of those messages or records can get the data as soon as possible. So we achieve so called real time. Uh, mechanisms for the messaging. But one uh, disadvantage of you know using main memory for buffering the data is, of course, um, you basically lack the durability of your messaging uh, systems. So for example, if your consumer is lagging behind or it has some you know uh, back pressure that is processing the data slowly, uh, the buffer data can actually uh, explode in the messaging tier or it will be dropped eventually so that you can actually you know, uh, have, some, uh, have some data, data loss. So one key thing that we consider is to have the durability uh, in our messaging system as like the first citizen. And for, to do that, we basically uh, use, um, use a, uh, what we call the um, commit log and that to do that uh, with a append-only behavior so that the data is persisted at uh, the disk level or persistent storage, as well as achieving the achieving the low latency and high throughput at the same time. So you're saying that the uh, it sounds like the most important thing was first of all durability. You'd like the like what are you improving in the transportation of data between systems? Mm -hmm. Durability. That's um, right. Which which is manifested in this idea of Kafka as a distributed commit log. Mm -hmm. So let's go into the second problem that Jay highlighted, which is richer analytical processing. How mm -hmm. does Kafka allow for richer analytical processing? So first, so of all, for richer analytical processing, I think the key, the key word here will be, uh, you know, you know, various types of different uh, data processing patterns. So each message can take, you know, as small as maybe one microsecond to process and can be also take as large as, you know, even seconds to process. So that is, I think, in my mind, what we call the richer processing. And because of that, that is, again, back to, uh, back to the first, uh, back to the first topic that uh, we really need to actually allow the consumers to basically consume or, you know, subscribe the data at their own pace. So again, to do that, we basically need to say, okay, if you are lagging behind the producing throughput, that is, is fine. We, sh we still need to, you know, persist the data so that when you, you know, catch up or uh, you change your logic, that data is still there for you to uh, make use of it. Let's go back to basics. What yeah. is a messaging system? Okay, so that is a, a good question. I think... Um, 
messaging system, you know, I think back to the 80s or even 70s, is mainly at like the transportation layer, where a messaging system uh, is when you have like uh, logically a queue where the producers of this messaging system will basically put data into the queue and the consumers where, uh, will be, you know, get data from the queue. And each message can be, you know, consumed at, uh, at most once by one of the consumers to this queue. And uh, at the same time, you can have some different patterns such as uh, pops up where basically one message can, the key difference is that one message can be consumed by more than one uh, consumers in, in this manner. So any consumers that subscribe to this queue will get the message that is ever being uh, published into this queue. Right, so um, could you talk more about the mm. network transportation layer of a messaging system? Yeah, so the network transportation layer, uh, usually it basically is composed of like some, some TCP uh, protocol or some Unix send file APIs to, you know, just to send the data as like uh, using the send file APIs. And uh, uh, so I think traditionally we don't have a concept of so-called a broker where the producer and the consumer are sort of like uh, uh, interacting in, uh, immediately and using some in-memory uh, uh, in caching to buffer the messages that is sent to the consumer but not being consumed yet. And uh, in Kafka, we introduce this so-called messaging broker, which is uh, served to persist the data and to handle the request from both the producer and, uh, uh, and the consumers. How does Kafka fit into the broader data warehouse architecture as a whole? Okay, so um, I can maybe talk about that in three aspects, right? So, like I think Kafka can be used as a messaging system for at least three aspects. One thing is for from online data to offline data. For example, like when I, when I say that uh, uh, back at LinkedIn, we actually generate a lot of the online data, such as you know uh, page views or impressions. They, most of them will be eventually piped to our you know, offline warehousing of Hadoop uh, clusters. So Kafka, in this case, will be, you know, be consumed by our ETL uh, systems that actually can get the data from Kafka and pour that into our uh, HFS uh, system that it will be eventually be processed using our uh, batch uh, processing uh, layer, such as, you know, uh, Hadoop or any other uh, system like Jira, etc. And those ETL tier can be, you know, Camus or Goblin, which are open sourced, or which people can use some other ETL uh, ETL framework to do to do this data porting. And another aspect of using Kafka is to have online to online pipelining, where the data is generated on our online services again, but they are also being consumed by other online systems. Such as you know, mass, uh, such as like emails or you know, uh, news feeds. So the, uh, this again can actually uh, be formed as one use case of Kafka. And a third aspect I want to mention is to actually have offline to online pipelining, where the data is really generated from our offline data warehousing systems, and they can be pipe pipe uh, pipelined using Kafka to our online data, such as like the machine learning results. Uh, that are like, like uh, computed uh, daily or weekly, and then be you know be pushed into our online services to serve the user requests. 
Kafka is summarized as published subscribe messaging rethought as a distributed commit log, as we've already stated. Mm-hmm. What is the analogy between messaging and a distributed commit log? Why is it why is it useful to to think in that comparative term? Okay, so um, yeah, I think the analogy here is that for um, for messaging systems, uh, you can you can view of its publishing as you know appending data to this logical queue that will be. Uh, you know, consumed eventually by the uh, by the other end, which are the consumers, right? And back in the you know the database uh, uh, community or distributed systems, uh, you know, a distributed or we can call it a, like a, um, a centralized commit log actually have the similar characteristics, characteristics where all the writes are append only, where you don't actually override the values so you already uh, you already have into the system. You only append new data records into the system, so this actually aligned very well with the with like the characteristics of a you know messaging system where you do not need to actually you you do not ever um, override the values you have already published to this messaging or messaging system or pop up messaging system. Instead, you only append new messages into it, and the 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 benefits of doing so is that again because we need to process the data onto disks. Having the pan-only behavior can actually allow us to make best use of the disk, which is sequential writes and sequential reads. Fascinating. Okay, what is the difference between messaging and streaming? Um, that's a very good question. So I think for streaming systems, okay, uh, it actually have to be from two folds. The first one is actually, of course, a pro- programming framework. So people should be able to uh, have uh, expressiveness power to easily programming their uh, logics, such as per record processing, uh, aggregates, and joins, etc. So uh, again, the first uh, aspect will be having a programming interface so that the users of this streaming uh, streaming processing system or streaming system can easily express their computational logic. And the second aspect is to actually abstract the you know the underlying distributed uh, details from the end from the end user, such as data parallelism, resource management, and monitoring. Uh, you know, if there is a, a failure in one of the processors, the stream uh, the the system framework should should be able to detect the failures and you know restart the task in some other nodes or resume it uh, when this node has been uh, recovered. So that is. I, in my mind, I think about as a streaming a streaming system, and a messaging system uh, is is really uh, like the underlying uh, data storage layer uh, underneath a streaming system. So, if you take an analogy from the uh, from the real time world uh, with the offline world, which we have, you know, HDFS as our storage layer, and have Hadoop, and it, uh, we can have some other, uh, you know. Back batch processing system as the computational layer. So messaging system is like the real-time, real-time world HDFS, which is served as the data storage layer, and the streaming systems built on top of the messaging system really provides the, you know, the programmability for the end users and uh, hide those distributed uh, characteristic implementation details while the users need only to focus on their computational logic. 
So would you say that messaging is like the plumbing of the streaming architecture? Yes. Discuss the basic vocabulary of Kafka. Mm -hmm. What are the topics and producers and consumers and brokers? Okay, so so the basic concepts in Kafka, I think I can summarize um, as follows. So first of all, the Kafka is composed of one or more, uh, we call it the messaging brokers, that serves as like the persistent storage for the published messages, and as well as the service for serving both the produce request and the consumer consume request from different clients. And on the client side, we we have the producer client, which uh, produce requests, uh, produce messages into the messaging broker, and the consumer clients, which consume messages, uh, messages from the uh, from the messaging brokers. And each of the the data that is get, getting produced and consumed has their own topic. So that that is also a key concept of a publish and a subscribe system, where the producer, whenever it sends a message to the messaging broker, uh, needs to associate a topic with this message, and consumers will just consume uh, will just subscribe to one or more topics. So whenever a message has been ever produced with the uh, with the subscribe topics, it will be uh, pipeline to the consumers. So and that is the concept of a topic, and each topic is again partitioned. At the, at the messaging broker layer to achieve data parallelism. So the partitions of a topic can be actually spanned across multiple, multiple uh, messaging broker machines so that when we have a larger and a larger data volume, uh, we can simply horizontally scale up by adding more machines and having more partitions for our topics so that uh, they, it can actually uh, handle the increasing volume. Talk a little more about those partitions and how Kafka performs sharding. Okay, so uh, again, so what a partition is like a concept of a topic. So when users uh, create a topic, they can specify a number of partitions as like, as the initialization uh, process, which will be created and automatically span over all the messaging broker machines. And uh, later on, user can add more partitions or shrink the number of partitions for this topic. Okay. And at the producing uh, side, when users send a message to the specific topic, the producer client will determine which partitions uh, this message should go to uh, for this topic. And the partition is usually determined either by a user-specified uh, user partition ID or it is uh, determined by the message key, so that all the all the messages with the same key uh, will be sending to the same partition. So that is another characteristic of Kafka, where we preserve the ordering of messages at the granularity of per, part per partition. In the 2011 paper about Kafka, there's a distinction that's made between application data and log data. Mm -hmm. which is uh, in like user behavior. So this distinction has become less clear over time. Is Kafka still viewed as a log record messaging tool? Okay, so I actually agree with your point that I think this, this distinction has been quite blurred over the past years. When Kafka was originally uh, developed, um, it was mainly served as the, you know, for logging data. 
what I uh, what I mentioned before, like uh, system logs or request weights that we collected as metrics from our servers. But over time, we have seen people, you know, uh, using Kafka also for different application data, such as, you know, you know, I have talked about user tracking data, and I also have talked about the online messaging data, such as emails and news feeds. So I think now Kafka has been actually used for any for actually any kinds of online type data, or like oh, I can I can I can mention them as like real time uh, data messaging. Which is you know uh, maybe be even already beyond the log data or application data. Right. So messaging typically has two models. You've got queuing and you've got publish subscribe. And with mm-hmm. queuing, a pool of consumers reads from a server, and each message goes to only one consumer. And so in queuing, maybe you have a list of tasks that the server just needs accomplished just once. And then in PubSub the message is broadcast to all consumers. And Kafka has a single consumer abstraction called a consumer group that generalizes Mm -hmm. both of these uses. Talk about consumer groups and how they were conceived and how they they deal with both of these models. Yeah, of course. Uh, First of all, I want to maybe uh, uh, mention why we choose to have a, you know, PubSub protocol for Kafka. So... That is, like, like you said, in queuing system, the, each message will be consumed by one of the consumers and get processed. But, uh, the, uh, but the truth is that in many cases, a single message needs to be maybe consumed by different, different, uh, by different data products. For example, a page view record may need to be consumed by some underlying machine learning applications to do the data analytics, and as, at the same time, need to be consumed again by some other online data products such as you know recommendation or search uh, product so we really need to design the system so that uh, a, a a record can be consumed by different you know consumers for different uh, processing purposes and then uh, uh, moving moving forward for each different purpose of the consumption or for each different processing logic uh, we define this consumer group where each group can, again, subscribe to one or more topics. And the consumers within that group will get, uh, one, uh, will get the message of uh, the subscribe topic. But the message will only be consumed once by one consumer of the group, so that no two consumers from the same group will get the same records. This is how we achieve the data parallelism as a consumer layer. And the way we we define the data parallelism is, again as a granularity of the partitions, such that the partitions of the subscribe topic will be assigned to the consumers within the group, so that uh, each partition will be consumed only by one consumer at a time. How does Kafka relate to protocol buffers and Apache Thrift? Okay, so. I think for protocol buffers, Apache Thrift and also like Apache Avro, uh, all th- those systems are, you are serving as like a data serialization or data standardization uh, systems where you can put any type of records uh, from your applications and serialize them and deserialize them while using, uh, while piping them through the messaging system. Uh, for example, uh, 
like uh, Kafka have been heavily used uh, Avril in the past for doing this kind of uh, serialization and deserialization. And uh, those uh, mechanisms are usually done by a so-called schema of the message so that for different types of data, users can define the schemas of those messages, which is, can be used by the, uh, by the system to do the serialization and deserialization. And then from the Kafka point of view, it's simply bytes in and bytes out. It does not need to be aware of any of the data schemas so that we can achieve various data types sharing one single pipeline system. Do, do Storm and Samza and Spark mm. all use Kafka in the same way? Um, I, I think they use Kafka in pretty similar way with some minor differences. For example, uh, I can talk about like Samza compared with uh, uh, Storm, where for Storm, uh, they use Kafka as the end system, where basically Kafka is only used for the, the source and the sync of the whole topology, right? And then for SAMHSA, people can actually usually define their topologies with Kafka also storing the intermediate results as well. But I think generally speaking, uh, people, those st streaming systems usually use Kafka in a similar way as the underlying storage, storage engine for their, you know, plumbing uh, logic. Right. So, um, and then maybe we could relate to Kafka. I, I know you talked a little bit about these earlier, but mm. how does Kafka relate to, or just compare to message queuing systems like RabbitMQ or ActiveMQ? Yes. So, um, actually before, uh, the team at LinkedIn have uh, decided to develop, uh, Kafka, we have also done some study on ActiveMQ and RabbitMQ to see if actually back, uh, back in time, uh, if those systems can meet our needs. I think um, one difference between uh, the later design Kafka with ActiveMQ or RabbitMQ is that uh, for those systems, uh, they were not originally designed for the data volume that we actually have seen today, which can be you know two or three magnitudes larger than the traditional messaging system or database systems. And because of that, uh, most of the, those uh, systems are designed to buffer the data in memory because of the because of the sm small scale of their of their data they need to handle so that they can achieve real time processing or oh, sorry real time messaging and again for large volume and also various different data types uh, this design has a few disadvantages one is of course the uh, the uh, because of the data volume is so large, they cannot really afford to always buffer their data on, um, in memory. And because of the different uh, processing logics, um, uh, the need for persisting their data so that they can be later consumed and reprocessed and also to be stored for handling like back pressure or consumer and logic errors is getting more severe. So that uh, I think this is one this is one of the main uh, differences that we saw uh, those this system compare with Kafka. You are an engineer at Confluent, which offers a stream data platform that uses Apache Kafka. Mm -hmm. What is Confluent? So Confluent is a um, Confluent is uh, we we say we we think of ourselves as a real time stream uh, a pipelining frameworks a provider. 
that is built around Apache Kafka so that uh, people can leverage to, you know, to build their own real-time systems uh, for their needs. And, and the purpose of managed data warehouse services like Confluent or Cloudera or Databricks mm-hmm. seems to be that these services are extraordinarily hard to configure. How mm-hmm. does a or maybe 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 I'm incorrect. Maybe that's not mm-hmm. how why what Confluent's motivation is. Um, but how how does a customer of Confluent communicate his requirements such that Confluent can go configure what the customer is asking for? Okay, so um, I think I I share your point that uh, for systems like as complex as uh, Kafka and as well as you know Spark and and also Hadoop, configuration such systems is always a pain. Such that you know you need you need to know how to operate, you need to know how to troubleshoot, etc. So for Confluent, uh, we provide like tooling and also uh, enterprise. Uh, class uh, platforms that is built around Kafka such that uh, we can actually make this a lot easier for users to just uh, to focus on their application development and simplify the ongoing operations. And uh, the way we, we approach, it, approach it is to actually suppose to build a, first of all, we build a uh, ecosystems around Kafka. For example, uh, we have mentioned uh, like uh, uh, Avro or Thrift or Protocol Buffer as the serialization and deserialization systems. Uh, th- these systems can be uh, supported uh, out of the box for users to really do the uh, data serialization uh, for, for them. And the, the second uh, example of such uh, ecosystems will be uh, some REST pro- uh, proxy where u- users that is not actually uh, using, for example, Java for their client can easily interact with Kafka to uh, publish and consume data from. In that blog post that I mentioned earlier, the blog post that Jay Kreps wrote, um, he described the world as it was when LinkedIn was first building Kafka, mm-hmm. and it sounded like a nightmare. To to quote him, the quote the complexity meant that the data was always unreliable. Our reports were untrustworthy. Derived indexes and stores were questionable. And everyone spent a lot of time battling data quality issues of all to- all kinds. End quote. Is this a common case among Confluence customers? Um, yeah, I think it depends on like the really the size and the the, the types of data that uh, I think our customers are collecting using uh, uh, using Kafka or any of the pipelining system. I think for, for LinkedIn, because like I said, we actually use, uh, uh, we need to collect all kinds of different online data and as well as offline data. We need to make them available to our various data products. Uh, having like one unified system to handle such uh, problem can become very tricky. And uh, as I said, before Kafka was really introduced, people just use their own uh, solutions uh, between each each pair of a point-to-point uh, producer and consumers. And that can actually have, uh, be very tricky to maintain uh, for, uh, for the first thing, and also uh, hard to troubleshoot because, because you have this variety of characteristics of the system that you need to, you need to train. 
for confident customers, I think uh, depending on the scale as well as the variety of data types, they can be a similar issue for, for them as well. If Confluent had existed as a company when LinkedIn was building out its data warehousing, and LinkedIn came to Confluent as a customer and said, help us, we have these problems, what would the process be like for onboarding LinkedIn as a customer? Ah, I see. Um, I think the way we like onboard our customers uh, at Confluent will be, first, we need to, you know, really understand very well about the scenarios of the, the pipelining, uh, uh, of the pipeline problems that our, uh, our customers are facing. For example, um, back in time, LinkedIn was facing this problem that Jay has already been describing as, you know, in, uh, you know, um, not durable, or I, I should, I should say it as, um, uh, not persistent data collection and also, uh, because of the because of the in-memory buffering, the data has can have the risk of being lost or being inaccurate at any given time, so that people have this um, different operational costs. So after we actually collect those information by communicating with our customers, we can we can actually suggest a uh, architecture solution first of all around Kafka as the uh, as a pipelining backbone to our customers. Um, and along with the different uh, types of uh, ecosystems for doing the management and operations. For customers of Confluent or just these managed data, big data providers, what is the integration process like if you're trying to use several managed big data providers? Like you're trying to use Cloudera for one thing, mm -hmm. maybe you're trying to use AWS for another, you're trying to use Databricks for another thing, you're mm -hmm. using Confluent for Apache, Kafka. What is the integration process like? Is it really difficult? Um, I think not, because actually, like, like you mentioned, like the uh, Confluent, Confluent and like Cloudera or Hollandworks and uh, like uh, AWS, they are really at different tiers and different areas of of a organization's data pipeline. So, so like exclusive. Mutually exclusive, I think, yeah. So like Confluent is mainly focusing on the real-time data pipelining. Um, that actually makes the data being, uh, you know, available to both the online and offline system that has, gets collected, where I think, you know, Hadoop's ecosystems is more on the uh, offline batching processing world where users can, you know, really make use of the collected and pipeline data and get value out of this data using their processing logic, such as like some data mining or machine learning or, you know, OLAP and the data warehousing uh, computations. And uh, where we also have a different layer beyond all those kind of systems, which is supporting the architecture uh, or the, like the, uh, the machines or the clusters for supporting those systems. I think that is where like uh, providers such as AWS is, is targeting at. So in my mind, I think those systems are quite exclusive and the, the ways of operating those systems should also not be conflicting with each other. What is the typical experience for, for a customer at a company that he's using Cloudera and Confluent mm -hmm. and Databricks? 
Um, and yeah, sure, they're they're mutually exclusive. But um, is there a role for this type of uh, managed big data technician, or uh, or or are these are these do these services work well enough that um, you know you you don't spend much time uh, like you know fixing things, and you you do you get to spend more time um, just just leveraging them or like what is what is the experience like for the for the end user on these sorts of platforms yeah i think uh for the user on the end platforms first of all they they will have some like the whole architecture solution uh people which basically uh you know have the 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 big picture of the whole pipeline from the real time to the to the offline world and as well as underlying uh, resource management cluster uh, monitoring etc and like for confluent we actually provide such um, you know consultant services for users to build up the whole uh, architecture involving uh, kafka as a uh, as a real-time messaging system and of course when there is like uh you know the the data services have some uh, uh, like uh, uh, examples, including some data linear uh, uh, requirements, such as if I am actually looking at my HDFS and I want to know from which online data types in Kafka does my HDFS data blocks get generated, then they actually may need some cross-platform um, solutions or cross-platform um, uh, services that can actually uh, does this monitoring or auditing for the for the user? Does it surprise you the way that the big data ecosystem has developed, where you have these different managed big data providers? Um, I'm sorry. Can you maybe say that again? I I don't sure. I'm, I'm yeah, not sure. I got the question clearly. Okay. D- does does it? So you know, if if you go back, um, you know, I don't know when I can't remember when the MapReduce paper was published, but mm-hmm. you know, you look at the MapReduce paper, and and then the Hadoop world starts to develop uh, after Hadoop is created. Mm-hmm. Um, does does the does the way that history unfolded surprise you at all? Like it seems like the way the the Hadoop ecosystem unfolded was this. Um, you know, now you've got this collection of managed big data providers and in order to build a big data platform um you 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 configure all these different uh services like this in the past it seems like this would have been something that like one company does and you go to that company you say hey do everything for me but it seems to be this this interesting development where you've got these different providers in the marketplace i'm not saying it's a good thing or a bad thing i just find it surprising Mm -hmm. um does it surprise you um, I think, yeah, it was actually changing quite a, quite a lot as a trend that, uh, like you said, in, I think in the, you know, in the old days, uh, we have this one size fits all system where all kinds of data needs will go to this system, right? So for any data usage, we just say, okay, store that in a, you know, database or a OLTP systems and do all kinds of queries over it. But, you know, have, today we have seen this one size fits all has been Kind of broken because of uh, two things. I think which the first one is uh, the volume of the data, and the second of it it will be the velocity of the of the data generating and being consumed and being uh, processed, as well as the variety of the data types that we actually generate with this high velocity. With those two trends, actually has been driving 
the so-called the one size does not fit all uh, principle, where we actually tend to build more uh, you know specialized systems for different uh, data data needs instead of having one system that actually fits all uh, processing requirements. What is the future of Apache Kafka? Um, I think Apache Kafka has been you know originated as a you know messaging but uh, you know pops up messaging systems, but I I do see that uh, users have actually coming with more and more different usage of uh, Kafka uh, when we actually have talking to them. And uh, I feel that uh, moving forward, at least there are a couple of trends that Kafka can be used beyond a, you know, a messaging system, uh, sort, of, uh, so, sort of saying. So one thing is to serve as the source of truth, uh, data storage for, uh, for different kinds of distributed systems. Because Kafka, in its uh, you know, in its virtue, is actually a you know a change lock or transaction commit lock, and for based on this replicated and distributed transaction logs, different system can leverage it can leverage it to use to use for different uh, needs such as data replication. So by leveraging this um, this uh, uh, sorry distributed and this, uh, uh, replicated transaction logs as a as a source of truth to do like consensus and to do data replication. And second needs is to actually serving it as, for example, the uh, the backbone for all kinds of online uh, real time data processing. Besides the uh, besides streaming stream processing, we have also seen usage of uh, you know interactive data query systems that can also use Kafka as underlying real time uh, data storage systems. So it's interesting. You said Kafka is the source of truth in many cases. How mm -hmm. does Kafka as a source of truth differ from the use of a database as a source of truth? Yeah, that's a good question. So. Uh, I myself also came from the database um, uh, background. So in many databases, right, so the data stored in the database itself is also backed by a so-called transaction log, or we call it the, the right ahead log, where the log itself actually is served as the source of truth in the, uh, in the case of a, like a failure or failure recovery scenarios. So. The, the use of such a log is actually served to recover the data to some point uh, when, the, when the system resumes or we actually migrate the system from some host into other hosts. And so this concept of a log has been uh, very important in actually a lot of the data, data storage engine, uh, engines. And because Kafka actually used this concept of a distributed uh, commit log as its storage protocol. It can also serve as a, as as the same needs for uh, for the for those storage storage engines. I think as a source of truth for the for the logging of the records or the logging of the change behavior. What is the future of Confluent? Um, well, I think for for us, we just want to you know be uh, part of the Apache Kafka community. Uh, be uh, you know contributing to Kafka uh, as much as we can to be to really make it as mature as a uh, as a you know the real time messaging or the real time storage system uh, de facto uh, choice and 
at the same time, I think Confluent is also trying to, you know, uh, build ecosystems for enterprise class uh, stream data platforms that we can, you know, um, uh, be, be, uh, be profitable uh, from this uh, movement of the real-time data systems. And what is Confluent's open source policy? Um, well, I think right now, uh, Confluent basically, uh, we, um, Confluent have like contributors and uh, committers in Apache Kafka that is, you know, contributing open source patches uh, at, uh, at the same time we that uh, develop, uh, you know, enterprise class dream data platforms. But I think for the core Kafka development, uh, we believe that uh, the development should really be happening at the uh, open source Apache Kafka. Uh, Confluent will only be cons uh, you know, building the ecosystems and the supporting and operational uh, tools to really support the users to use the open source Apache Kafka for their real-time data needs. And how, how much time do the engineers at Confluent spend uh, on open source software? Um, I can't maybe speak for other people at the company uh, because like different people have a different focus. Like some, some of us actually have more focused as a, uh, you know, the enter enterprise products. Some of us are more focused on, you know, the open source. So for myself, I think, uh, um, more than 80% of my time is actually we spend on open source Apache Kafka development. Is there much, uh, uh, within the open source community, is there much interaction between uh, engineers from, from different companies? Like, like does, uh, do, the, do the Kafka guys spend, a, uh, or do the, do the Kafka guys at Confluent spend a good amount of time con communicating with people at Cloudera or at Databricks saying like, hey, here's, here are some points where we need to integrate better, or, or does that communication, is that not necessary? Oh, yeah, that communication is definitely necessary, and uh, we actually are doing it at a very healthy uh, pace. So at Kafka, uh, we have this uh, Kafka improvement process meeting at a weekly basis where all, you know, all the developers or contributors from, from the community will, uh, you know, meet, you know, electronically face to face to discuss about the, about the development progress. So, and also for the project wise, uh, we have like uh, contribute, contributions from uh, companies like, you know, LinkedIn, Confluent, uh, Hortonworks, Cloudera on different aspects. So, um, I think the communication is, you know, really uh, well organized and uh, is very healthy. And, uh, you know, we actually meet and talk to people uh, nearly every day and every week to discuss about the future development of the open source product. It almost seems like much of the development process within these open source, uh, these open source driven business models, it seems like these, these companies like Databricks, Confluent, mm -hmm. Confluent, uh, Cloudera, the companies don't really seem to step on each other's toes because it seems like the space of opportunity is so big. Each of these companies can focus on mutually exclusive opportunities. I mean, maybe there's maybe there's some exception with like Cloudera and Hortonworks, uh, but but for mm -hmm. the most part, it seems like uh, you know that you can focus on a narrow open like delivering a narrow open source project as a service and 
like that can be a business. Uh, I mean, d- is that accurate? Does that seem accurate to you? Yeah, I agree. I, I, I think that, uh, like, for example, Hortonworks and Cordera, they also contribute a lot to the open source Apache Kafka project. But I think, you know, business-wise, we really don't have too much of a conflict uh, conflict because uh, the companies actually are focusing on different uh, business areas. That seems so much different than any other industry I can think of. Oh, uh, Yeah. Yeah, that's an interesting that's an interesting scenario to observe. I agree. <laughs> what is the future of big data as a whole? Um so for me, I mean, my personal take would be that the, you know, one size does not fit all trend will continue. So such that people will continue to build, you know, more spe- you know, not more but maybe you know, f- you know, uh uh, much specialized systems for different kinds of uh, uh, storage as well as processing needs of different data types of uh, of data, and uh, I think you know uh, from from a you know business point of view that uh, those companies uh, that actually are focusing on different kinds of specialized systems will also emerge. And uh, one observation, like you said, is that uh, those companies. Uh, may well, you know, coexist for for sharing, you know, different kinds of customers because of the the areas they are focusing is quite different. Describe your perspective on the movement from batch based processing to stream based processing. Yeah, so I think uh, in the past maybe ten years of this big data uh, movement. People have been uh, mostly focused on the volume of the data because that is actually the first big thing that comes when we re-enter the new era. We see that uh, different uh, types of data has been collected at a much larger uh, scale compared with the traditional uh, data usage. Uh, but I think moving forward, uh, as we have achieved uh, you know, a very large uh, volume of the data already, People will be uh, will be gradually moving their focus to the velocity of their data, so that uh, people will now ask that okay, now I have this already large volume of data. My next question will be how soon can I actually make those data available to my data analytics uh, system so that I can really get value out of it. So I think that is also like a big opportunity for the real time world to emerge in the in this big data uh, movement. And can you explain some of the trade-offs for a company that's looking to move a lot of their batch processing to stream processing? Like, uh, you know, what? How how expensive is it? Uh, well, yeah, the, I think the first 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 thing that uh, I, uh, for you know the the cost of the such movement will be also the data migration, right? So for offline uh, data processing, people tend to use like uh, HDFS as the sort of choose data storage to store their data for batch processing. And when they consider moving to real time, uh, many of those, those data will better be migrated into online uh, data storage systems such as Kafka. So that data migration will be uh, one operational cost that people need to pay when they do this migration. And the second uh, the second thing that I think people uh, move to uh, um, online processing would be, you know, uh, uh, the 
like the logic of their computational patterns. Because in terms of batch processing, where users are actually more focused on processing a block of data at a time, for real-time processing, uh, it is actually a much finer gran uh, uh, granular, so such that people are actually focusing at uh, one record at a time processing patterns. So this change of uh, mind in designing their uh, computational logics and application, you know, application uh, logics can also be uh, something that people need to pay attention to. So if I understand streaming correctly, mm-hmm. uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, but um, a, a lot of it is, it's sort of like you take things that we used to use, do on disk, uh, we used to use disk for, right? Like Hadoop, mm-hmm. we use disk, and we move that we move that uh, that functionality to end memory, so it's so mm-hmm. it's faster. Um, is that accurate? Um, I think it's um, maybe not like one hundred percent accurate in terms of the definition, uh, but it's okay. It's, so how would, it's how a would personal you thing. So I think like. In the past, when people talk about stream data, right, they really focus on the aspect that uh, the data record can only be processed once. Now, that is mainly because that you store your data, like you said, in memory, such that uh, it can it, if it can only be you know observed and processed once. And because that the new data will be keep coming, we have to you know uh, drop those data right after it gets processed. So the the focus of the stream, streaming data is really uh, is really on the you know the one time processing uh, characteristics compared with the original you know uh, DBMS where the data is persistent at disk. You can you know access and query them whenever you want, right? But today, since we are moving to real time data storage, also persisting them uh, into a persistent storage such as like Kafka does. I think this. This kind of like aspect of uh, streaming data processing has been, you know, blurred a lot, such that the user can actually do reprocessing as well, even if they are, you know, processing streaming data. On the other hand, people are more focused on the computational patterns, such that the uh, streaming data is a consecutive processing of one record or, you know, a batch of record at a time, compared with you know, original uh, OLTP or data warehousing or today the, the batch processing systems where people will basically be accessing the whole data set all at once and do the query over it. So that is, I think, the more uh, focus people are uh, looking at today for processing streaming data. And uh, I, I know we're running low on time, but I'll just ask you uh, one more, one or two more questions. Sure. Um, so the... the, the st- I want to talk some about the synergies between a streaming and a batch uh, architecture. Are mm-hmm. people building architectures in such a way where you've got um, elements of your architecture that are being constantly updated via streaming, and mm-hmm. you are occasionally running Hadoop queries across that constantly updated stream data? Um, does, does that make sense? <laughs> does that make sense? <laughs> So it, it well, maybe I'll, more, let, me, yeah. let me phrase this better. Let me yeah. phrase this way better. Okay. Um, what are some synergies between a streaming and a batch architecture? Like, uh, what are what are some systems where you would want to have the uh, this heterogeneity of streaming and batch? Okay. Yeah. Uh, I think for streaming data, uh, basically, again, it's like a consecutive uh, processing where you cannot actually access the whole data set 
uh, all at once. Instead, you will access uh, maybe one record at a time or you know a, a small batch of record at a time. And you have to basically make your processing logic to be adaptive to such a characteristic of data, uh, of data, uh, of data types. Where for batch processing, usually the, the data has already been available as a whole to the users, and the users can actually access them and query them uh, from bottom up to get the whole uh, to get the whole value out of the data at once. But again, like you said, uh, the data needs actually time to really be t completely available and and be queryable to the users, so that there will be a you know a trade off between the you know the latency of data availability compared with the computational logic you can actually execute over your, your data to make value of it. Okay, well, that seems like a good place to close. Uh, thank you so much for coming on Software Engineering Daily. It's, it's been a real pleasure speaking with you. And, um, and yeah, I'm, uh, I'm a big fan of what you guys are doing at Confluent, and, and uh, keep it up. So thank have you. a great day. You too. Thanks, Jeff. Okay. Yeah, thank you. Thank you.